This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club. I'm George Hammond, Chair of the Humanities Forum, which organized tonight's event. Um, I'd like to introduce Claire Brindis, um, who uh, came up with the idea for the panel um, months ago, and uh, given uh, the amount of activity of the president in this area. The, the, the content has changed <laughs> quite often, <laughs> and we're trying to be right up to date as to what's going on, but it's very hard to keep track of anything changed this morning. Um, so uh, she will be, uh, and the panel will be discussing Trump care. Is it the right treatment for what ails the American health care system? And Claire, as the moderator, is the director of Philip R. Lee Institute for Health Policy Studies at UC San Francisco. And she will introduce uh, the panel members. Thank you very much for putting this together, Claire. Thank you, George. And thank you for being a great partner in crime. Um, So we're very excited to be here. And it is an incredibly important topic. And, you know, you've all heard that Obamacare is a major disaster. You've heard that why should we bail out the healthcare industry? And you probably heard that someone said, Someone you know said, nobody knew how complicated healthcare is. Well, clearly, many people did know how complicated it is, and part of our panel today will be focusing and unpacking some of the complicated aspects of this basically important issue. And over the last few months, we've been spending a lot of time going through various waves of political action. You've heard about repeal and replace, then we went through a period of repeal then repeal and delay. And currently, we're in a period where we were thinking that it should be called keep and destroy. Uh, Hopefully not. And uh, part of what we're going to be talking about are some of the ways and approaches that we can do to improve healthcare delivery. We've also adjusted to a, a lot of new words, a lot of new vocabulary. Skinny health plans, problem solvers caucus, a variety of bipartisan group work, uh, groups who are working on health care reform, cost sharing, reduction subsidies, imploding health care system, and trying to find a stable fund for the subsidies. If you may remember, it was just a week ago that we witnessed the importance of three senators who did not experience mural dyslexia. Mural dyslexia is the inability to read the writing on the wall. And clearly, their efforts helped to push back the healthcare doomsday clock for all of us. We have a variety of challenges and, and threats to improving our, our healthcare delivery system that represents over a trillion dollar industry. And we're very concerned about issues such as the destabilization of the insurance marketplace. We are very grateful to the California Healthcare Foundation for their support of a series of talks, including this one, pertaining to healthcare reform. And these talks um, are occurring here in a variety of community settings because it's so important to help inform the public about the complexities of this very important issue that touches all of our lives. We're particularly uh, happy that we've been able to partner at the UCSF 
Philip Arley Institute for Health Policy Studies with the UC Hastings School of Law, the UCSF, UCSF Hastings School of Law Consortium on Law, Science, and Health Policy, and the Center for Healthcare Value, which is also part of the Institute for Health Policy Studies. We're very fortunate to have a wonderful panel of nationally renowned, internationally renowned health policy experts who are also my very treasured colleagues and who will help to share with you some of the many issues that we need to uh, consider. So I want to briefly introduce you to you. We could spend the rest of the time just talking about the history of these individuals, but our first speaker will be Andy Byman, who's a professor of medicine and health policy at UCSF. He previously worked with the Energy and Commerce Committee with the U.S. House of Representatives, where he was intimately involved in the drafting of legislative language for the Affordable Care Act. He also recently served as the director of the U.S. Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality, and his many areas of expertise and research relate to Medicaid and healthcare workforce, among many other topics. Next to Andy is Dr. Jamie King, who's the co-director of the UCSF UC Hastings Consortium on Science, Law, and Health Policy, and the executive director of the Source on Healthcare Price and Competition at UC Hastings College of the Law, as well as the co-director of the Concentration on Law and Health Science. Her research focuses on the drivers of healthcare costs with a special interest in market consolidation and efforts to improve transparency in healthcare pricing. And last but not least is Dr. Adam Studley, who's a professor of medicine and health policy at UCSF. He's the director of the UCSF Center for Healthcare Value, as well as associate director of research at the Institute. His major research interests are in the area of quality of care and value-based purchasing. So I'm going to be speaking, uh, we're going to be speaking for about 40 minutes, and then we'll have an opportunity for audience members to um, participate as well. And I want to say that I think we should start off with the question of the fact that more than seven years after the passage of the Affordable Care Act or the ACA or Obamacare, Republicans in Congress and President Trump had their much-anticipated opportunity to overturn this law. And I think we should start off by talking about why is the ACA such a lightning rod, and what is the difference in how Republicans and Democrats view federal health care policy? Well, Claire, thanks. Let me actually start off with that and then see if my fellow panelists have uh, more to say about it. But... Um, First of all, it's a pleasure to be here this evening um, uh, to have a chance to engage with with all of you. Um, you know, I think this uh, this public dialogue that's been going on about the Affordable Care Act really reflects, in w in one way, the differences between politics and policy. Um, if it were just about policy, I don't think we'd be having this kind of disagreement because, after all, the Affordable Care Act uh, is really a pretty direct offshoot of the experiment that was first undertaken in Massachusetts to expand health care coverage, and that was done under Republican Governor Mitt Romney. Uh, and, uh, you know, so many of the elements of what the Affordable Care Act is about really were uh, uh, bringing together many ideas that were put forward by uh, Republicans. Uh, so it's not so much, I think, about policy in many cases, but uh, really does reflect a political a decision that was made by uh, many of the Republicans uh, in Congress that it might be in their interest not to allow 
President Obama and his administration to have a win, if you will, in, in health care. Uh, but I do think there are truly some uh, differences in the philosophy of what is being attended to when health care reform is thought about by Democrats and Republicans. I think for Democrats, it really was about trying to address a social justice issue that for many years had been raised about there are problems with uh, access to care and coverage uh, of insurance coverage. And so the Democrats, of course, really wanted to see health insurance coverage expanded. And the Affordable Care Act has been quite successful in that regard. We've seen over 20 million of the uninsured gain coverage uh, since this law was passed. So that's really the highlight uh, from the Democrats' point of view. For Republicans, I think there is a different priority that is put forward, which is a concern about the fact that much of how this expansion happened was through an expansion of entitlement programs uh, that were supported by the federal government. And what entitlement programs have done to the federal budget, in a, in a sense, what's happened over time is that more and more of the federal budget is accounted for by entitlement programs like Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, and now uh, subsidies in the exchange and so forth. And I think this brings a, a great anxiety to those who are very much prioritizing uh, fiscal concerns. And so that really uh, gets to the heart of uh, a difference in terms of what priorities might be between Democrats and Republicans, particularly when Republicans are also, and Democrats as well, recognizing that the demography of this country is aging. And as a result, the commitments through entitlements are only going to be growing uh, over time. So this, I think, is a very big deal, particularly if uh, you are prioritizing trying to control costs and at the same time are thinking about on the Republican side that you would like to cut taxes to stimulate the economy. So I think part of this battle is about differences in priorities, uh, Democrats really valuing a social justice agenda of increasing access and Republicans are very much uh, worried about what that will cost. It's great. You know, it's really important for uh, Andy to bring up the underlying principles. It's the kind of conversation that we should be having, uh, and there have been opportunities to have that that have sort of slipped away in in uh, the current debate. So, for instance, at one point, um, talking about people with pro, uh, pre-existing conditions, uh, Mo Brooks from Alabama said, "If you've lived a good life, you won't have pre-existing conditions," um, and and that's a a, a f view of what illness is and how illness happens um, that that fits well with um, I don't think that a, an entitlement should be put in place for people to get health care uh, because the people who need the health care have done something wrong and why should I have to pay for someone who's done something wrong um, and and that's actually a, a kind of underlying assumption that we really need to get at. Is that why we think, as a society, that illness happens? Are there exceptions to that? And, and if so, how, how should we deal with those? Um, and if we accept part of that assertion, then what does that mean? Uh, you know, y you could imagine separate, parsing that statement quite a bit. And a kid born with a particular problem, you can't blame them. Someone who's been smoking for a long time, you could say, well, maybe they do have some responsibility. But instead of having that kind of conversation, we've had a very different sort of finger pointing uh, and a kind of conversation. And, and we hope we can get to the root of things a little bit more tonight and going forward. So thanks for giving us that background, sort of the philosophical approaches. Um, so let's think about how that philosophical approach then has been translated by the GOP into its viewpoint into the policy. What did 
Trump care turn out to be? I think it's a great question. It's one that we're still trying to figure out, right? It sort of depends on what day of the week it is, turning out, figuring out what Trump care uh, is that at that particular time. And I think some one of the big problems that they've had in this in this arena has been over the different factions in the Republican Party about what kind of agenda they wanted to put forward. So. You know, Rand Paul really wanted to see full repeal, and nothing short of full repeal would have would suffice. Paul Ryan cared a lot more about um, limiting funds to Medicaid and reducing the entitlement program, as as Andy talked about a little bit more. Um, others. Ted Cruz really cared about limiting the amount of regulation on insurance plans and pulling back sort of the government hand that was guiding a lot of that. And so having less control both over insurance plans and then other people wanted less control over individuals and thinking about the individual mandate and the employer mandate and requiring people to get insurance that they might otherwise not choose to have and requiring certain things to be in plans that people maybe didn't want coverage for. Um, and then other people cared a lot about reducing the entitlements um, at, put in as a part of the ACA in order to be able to give tax breaks and sort of forward their other agendas, um, as we heard. And so I think figuring out what Trump care really meant was a constantly moving target. But, I mean, the main tenets of it tended to be reducing payments um, in Medicaid, reducing spending on Medicaid, getting rid of the individual mandate, um, and Providing um, providing extra funds for tax breaks and things like that, but that seemed to be a lot of the main of the main focus. Even though the plans changed quite a bit, I think the individual mandate is a really good place to for us to think about and look at um, some of the problems with this bifurcate, more than bifurcate, this very splintered approach that the Republicans were taking. Because everybody had their problems with the ACA, but when you're trying to pick off what they didn't sort of realize was that as you try and pick off those individual things. The entire system, the ACA sort of falls apart. So you can't get rid of the individual mandate because you don't like the government telling you that you have to buy insurance without recognizing the role that it's playing in the bigger scheme, right? And so Republicans never liked the individual mandate. It's very much against Republican philosophy, right? But if you get rid of the individual mandate, it affects the entire rest of the ACA, (laughs) right? So the ACA, in some respects... You can't, you can't have the popular provisions of the ACA, which would be guaranteed issue, which says that everybody can get insurance when, you know, if they want it, and community rating, which says everybody pays about the same price, if you don't have the individual mandate there to spread the risk and lower the cost across the board. And so because there was so much... Um, because there was so much nitpicking at particular things, it became very hard for the Republicans to nail down an agenda and to coalesce around one particular plan. They all kind of wanted to pick off different things. So, And, and again, that it's so important not to talk about what the underlying philosophies are. So most of what you just said, we infer from what was done rather than statements going out, we need to cut health care so that we can have other, other tax cuts. That was not said. Um, and and then the conversation got got uh, even more confusing. So at some point um, late uh, last week, um, people were saying uh, people on the right were saying something they'd never ever ever said before or suggested was a good thing, which is we already have universal health care. And then they would follow that with anyone can go to the ER and get care if they need to. <laughs> um, and and it's a crucial 
moment in our, or could turn out to be a crucial moment in our in our national healthcare debate because it asserts a very different underlying assumption. It says many people on the right were saying, perhaps influenced by the feedback that they'd gotten about proposing to take insurance away, were saying, no, we have health care, and the implication is, and that's a good thing. We have universal health care, and that's a good thing. So if that is a view that um, people on the right continue to back, then it totally changes the conversation. Then you, ha- then you say, okay, well, if everyone's going to have health care, is it the best way in terms of their clinical outcomes to send them to, to have them wait until they're sick and go to the ER? Is it the cheapest way to do it? Or is there another way that we could go about having universal health care where uh, we got better outcomes for patients at a lower cost? So, we'll, I mean, we'll see. what We've got to figure out what the underlying uh, issues are, and we've got to talk about those. Well, clearly we anticipated some other kinds of outcomes with the election. But I think it's really important to be thinking about what are the prospects for the ACA remaining intact or being repealed into the future? Well, I think, you know, one of the big outcomes probably from last week of really the very dramatic um, vote in the Senate in which it was very unclear until the last moment uh, what was going to actually happen there um, is that as they voted on uh, different partisan bills and got skinnier and skinnier, referring to the fact that it was just a smaller and smaller aspect of what they needed to try to change, they still could not cobble together uh, ultimately the 50 Republican votes uh, in, in the Senate. And so I think that was a um, not only a dramatic moment, but uh, somewhat of an embarrassing public moment for Uh, Republican senators. And I think that will create something of a barrier going forward to continuing to try to do uh, this kind of partisan approach to health care reform. And even though we've continued to hear a little bit from the White House of, you know, take it up again, do great things, um, uh, that uh, it's going to be, I think, very uh, much less likely now that we'll continue to see that uh, approach. And, you know, why did this happen a little bit? I guess I would say, you know, having been on the other side of this when the ACA was going forward, I think we've had a a president uh, who is very much a cheerleader but was really not prepared to be a quarterback. And um, I think that's just a very different set of roles. Uh, During the ACA process, um, I was exposed to seeing uh, President Obama give the Congress a tremendous amount of flexibility of trying to shape something, but at the end of the day, the White House was very clear about how to coalesce and bring together disparate policies in a way so that it made a coherent sense. Uh, and uh, we have not had that, I think, uh, in this attempt to unravel things, that it is, as Jamie was talking about, picking off individual items, but then what's left behind doesn't make any conceptual sense anymore. And uh, I think the inability of the White House to really sort of understand that and know how to put together some kind of coherent plan has really undermined things. So I I do think that we're probably hopefully getting out of the phase of just a pure partisan, no hearing, kind of secret, let's bring out the bill at the last minute approach. But we may be shifting to something which might be quite reasonable for us to all be thinking about, which is some kind of bipartisan approach to addressing either smaller parts of what needs to be fixed. I think everyone has said, including Senator Schumer, that the ACA is not perfection. It uh, was 
uh, probably a very significant improvement over uh, what had uh, been the case in the health insurance marketplace before uh, the ACA was in place, but things still need to be uh, addressed. And I do think that there is now potential for some bipartisan uh, approaches uh, to move forward on specific things, things like uh, cost uh, sharing reductions, which uh, Claire referenced, which is going to be probably a very important part of helping to shore up things like exchanges like we have here in California of Covered California. Uh, So I do think there is a possibility of that. It's going to take a while maybe for the leadership for Senator McConnell and for uh, Leader Ryan, uh, for um, the, the uh, for for Paul Ryan to feel confident about allowing for some of these things uh, to bubble up, but uh, I do think there's a possibility. But I also think bipartisanship also is going to require that both sides be prepared to give up some of the things that they're holding on to most strongly. If the Democrats mostly want to see improvements in affordability of health care coverage, that is to uh, make it more possible for more people to come and buy in, then they may need to think about whether they're willing to negotiate some of the strategies of bringing people in through things like mandates. And are there other ways to accomplish bringing healthier people in? I think we can talk about what some of those strategies might be, but I just bring that up that bipartisan approach probably is going to require truly some give and take on both sides. We haven't really seen uh, that process yet, but I do think to move forward, we'd be going back to kind of regular order of 60 votes in the Senate, not the 50, and trying to pick off uh, individual pieces. So, Adams, I'm going to ask you a question specifically about one of the main arguments that President Trump has been giving for why the ACA needs to be repealed, because it's really failing. And these comments seem to be really focused very much about the health insurance exchanges for individuals who don't obtain private insurance through their employer. Is the ACA failing? So, again, it gets back to what's important to you. If What's important to you is to not have the federal budget uh, rise um, and not to, to not create a new entitlement, then yes, the ACA is failing because a lot of money is being spent to give people uh, more insurance. If what's important to you is having everyone or almost everyone have insurance, um, uh, then the, it unquestionably it is not failing. So um, for the first time recently, uh, 95% of American children had insurance. Um, so if, that, if that's your policy goal, then, it, then it's doing well. Um, if you look at specific news events, um, a, a different story comes out. So in the beginning uh, of the ACA, uh, actually even before the website disaster, which was an unmitigated disaster, but even before that, um, uh, there were people, uh, President Obama had said, if you like your insurance, you can keep your insurance. And there were a lot of people unhappy because it turned out that, they, no, they could not keep their insurance. Um, and, in fact, they were going to have to pay more. And there was an, a rise in premiums. Uh, but it's really important to understand why that happened. So the ACA um, said that your insurance must have more features that protect you from uh, financial ruin than previous uh, insurance products that were out in the market. 
So you couldn't have an insurance plan that capped what you were paid at $15,000 a year or what they would cover at $15,000 a year, for instance. And yet many of those kinds of plans were being sold. And so people did have to pay more. They could not keep the insurance plan that they had. Um, and, and so that was a promise unkept. Um, and it led to dramatic increases in premiums because if the cap on what they're going to pay goes from 15 to a million or something like that or infinite, um, then, then uh, it's, it's going to cost more. Um, subsequently, there were further rounds of, in some states, further rounds of uh, high premium increases. Um, this was a different kind of, of failing, um, and it was a failing of the ACA. The, the, re the reason that that happened was because um, their expectation was that, well, there's a mandate and there's a penalty, everyone will buy insurance. And it turned out that the penalty wasn't big enough that all the healthy people would go ahead and buy insurance. Some of them said, I'll just pay the penalty instead. Um, and that was a miscalculation about how big the penalty would need to be. And so what happened was the insurers went into that thinking, well, we need to charge this to be able to cover the people who we're going to get. But when they didn't get as many healthy people, they had to raise it to say, well, we're not going to actually get all the healthy people. And so there was another round of big premium increases. So that is another sort of internal to the ACA failure. Um, but then it seems like it has mostly stabilized out. And so the failings that are being pointed out now are actually not from the original version of the ACA, but from what's being done to the ACA right now. So when you, the, the, uh, you've heard about the cost-sharing subsidies to the, to the insurers, and the, uh, the administration is saying we, we're not going to commit to paying those. So now you're asking insurers to say what the price of insurance could be when they have billions of dollars they don't know if they're going to get or not get. And so some are saying, well, we just can't play that game. There's no way for us to win. If we price it too low, then, uh, then we'll lose a, a, a ton of money. If we price it too high, we'll be accused of being greedy. And look what's happening to those people who say they're increasing their rates by 20%. And yet, if we don't price it high and we don't get the subsidies, then we're really in trouble. We might go out of business, and nobody likes an insurance company that goes out of business. So at the moment, a lot of the problems are actually from how the law as written is being implemented. Given the importance of exchanges, though, for the American marketplace, um, what do you think are some of the solutions? What are some of the potential ways that we can get a handle on some of the problems that you've just clarified for us? Well, so there, there's, we need to figure out how to get if, – if we're going to continue along the philosophy of everyone should be in um, – whether or not you believe it's they're in covering the cost of people in the emergency room or they're in uh, through everyone having insurance, um, we have to find some way to have everyone pay. Um, because right now what's happening is that, a, a, uh, or what was happening before the ACA, is that a fair number of people were not paying in, and then if they got sick, they just went bankrupt. Um, and so any money that they eventually paid in was funneled through bankruptcy courts, which is an incredibly inefficient and expensive way to get people to pay for things. Um, and many things that they, uh, the many uh, debts that they owed never in the end did get paid. Um, so we have to come up with a better way um, to ensure that the healthy are, are in and stay in. Um, and then you've probably heard about the risk pools uh, ideas uh, and this concept of segmenting the market into people who have pre-existing conditions and, and people who don't. And that's something that we need to talk about in a, in a meaningful way. Um, but the problem with the uh, proposals that we've seen thus far is they said, oh, we'll take care of people with pre-existing conditions in these risk pools, and here's the $10 billion or the $15 billion that they were going to do in the first year uh, to do that. 
when the estimates for what it would cost to take care of those people were $178 billion. Um, and so it's sort of a pretend uh, risk pool and not a real uh, taking on of that concept. Um, and, and it might make sense. It might be that risk pools are a way. Say, say more government support to the sick people at a real level so that the the premiums for the people who aren't yet sick can be lower. Maybe that would draw them in voluntarily or by mandate or whatever. But if we don't actually try to do that, if we say, well, what really is going to happen is the, there's not going to be that much money for sick people there, then no one can stomach that. And we can't have a real conversation because people are saying, well, you're basically killing off the sick people. Um, so hopefully we'll... Um, uh, you have other ideas, Andy, about what, what needs well, to be done I'm, to fix? I mean, I think fundamentally, you know, what, what's underlying a lot of the Obamacare notion of exchanges is to create competition for health plans because competition actually will help to drive down costs. And to get competition means you have plans that are willing to show up and feel confident about that they can uh, at least <laughs> keep their head above water in this marketplace. So Adams has already referred to the cost-sharing uh, reduction subsidies. Just to make sure everyone understands that, this is this concept that those who are between 100 and 250 percent of the federal poverty level are relieved of uh, co-payments, deductibles, co-insurance costs that would, on top of premiums, make it very difficult for them to be able to uh, afford to buy health insurance coverage. And it is the case because of uh, ways that the law is implemented that the administration has a lot of power to decide whether or not to continue that funding. Of course, the Congress could come along and pass a law to make that really explicit. And in fact, uh, they are talking about maybe trying to do just that because, in fact, many of the senators from both sides of the aisle don't see it in their interest of ruining the market of competition of insurers in their area. So number one is I think we need to stabilize competition and and promote that through uh, getting the cost-sharing reductions clear and available to help low-income people come in. There are also other things that can be done to make the marketplaces work better. You've got to you know, you got to advertise. You know, many things go on in this country. For example, if you want to get a driver's license, young people learn early on in our state and in most other states that to drive a car, you have to have auto insurance. And so they see the value of that. We have no educational process in this country that helps people teach them about the value of health insurance. And so, therefore, it's not a complete surprise that young people wonder about, gee, there's that really expensive thing there. Is that just like uh, an extra or is that really an important part of what it means to be part of a civil society? and what my responsibility is in terms of of paying in and so forth. So we need to do a lot more marketing and help people understand also what the affordable avenues are to be able to buy health insurance so that young people will come in and do that. So the marketing needs to be positive and, and, and out there. And then I think we also need to make sure that the products that are being sold really are providing what I'd call first dollar coverage, that you don't pay in a whole bunch to get a premium. And then on top of that, when you go to use it, you've got thousands of dollars of deductible before you actually get the benefits of it. We've been actually quite fortunate here in California that Covered California has taken a very aggressive stance with regard to making certain things not be subject to the deductible, like primary care visits, so people can see the value of what they're getting when they buy health insurance. And I think that's a key part of what needs to be improved in the regulation and implementation of what health insurance is all about. And then finally, we need to really recognize that there's a cliff right now, that when you get, there is help 
from the government to buy health insurance up to 400% of the federal poverty level. But it turns out when you live in places like San Francisco, as much as that sounds like it's a big amount of money, you know how expensive it is here and how expensive it is in many parts of the country. It just drops off in terms of the help that the government is offering you. And we need to make a smoother landing going even beyond the 400% of federal poverty level to make sure that people can find this product affordable. So those are some of the things that I think could really help to make it uh, more possible and to make health insurance companies feel confident about competing and not exiting the market because of the uncertainty the government is doing with regard to its support and implementation of this law. The individual mandate has also been a key portion of making sure that people feel like there will, will be a penalty if I don't play in this game. But there's a lot of positive things that we can also do as, uh, to try to encourage people to come in through education and other, and other strategies. If I could. So this is why it's so important to talk about what really matters. So the ACA is very competition-based, as the way it's set up. It is actually very much based on ideas from the right. Um, and yet, before the ACA, with the ACA, and certainly now, we've had all this conversation about uh, and fighting and sort of n- not very deep conversation, shallow conversation and tweets this way and tweets that way um, uh, about who's to blame. And we aren't talking about why things are so expensive, the real root of why things are so expensive. So uh, anyone in here uh, had a, a hip or knee replacement? Um, yeah, I see some of those. Uh, the the piece of metal that is now in you, if you had gotten that in Vancouver, it would have cost about a quarter. The exact same piece of metal would have cost about a quarter what it costs in the United States. We pay enormous amount more for each of the things that we get in healthcare, and then we do a lot more of them. Um, and in a lot of situations, it, it's known that they're not helpful. Um, and so. That kind of conversation needs to happen, too, and we need to get off or get through somehow all this talking uh, po- politics rather than policy and get to – because people are really being hurt right now by not talking about policy. And and there's actually much more grounds for agreement than people seem to realize, um, just as evidenced by the fact of how very – I mean, the ACA structure came from the Heritage Foundation – um, which is a, a right think tank, and was actually their proposal in response to the Clinton's proposal for for reforming health care. Um, so we got to get to the right conversations as soon as possible. So, Jamie, we talked a lot about the exchanges, and I think it's important now to move and shift into thinking about really what is a big change in the coverage which has really related to the Medicaid program. And what role does Medicaid play in our health care system? And what are the key policy issues we're likely to see debated in the days ahead? You know, I think a lot of the of the changes that the Republicans have put forward are, are really based around Medicaid and the entitlements that it provides. And I think that it's important for us to remember that Medicaid serves a huge portion of this country. It's not just um, a program that is for, you know, very, very low-income people. Obviously, it qualifies that. But 40% of babies born in this country, their birth is paid for via the Medicaid program and Medi-Cal. 
we have a number of disabled individuals. We have nursing home and uh, people whose long-term care is paid for through via Medicaid. And so it turns out to be a huge swath of the American public that is touched by Medicaid at some point in their life, very often around the earliest points of life and very often towards the later parts of life. And so Medicaid, the Medicaid program, I think it's very easy to to sort of think that this is just for, you know, people who you hear sometimes people say, oh, they choose not to work or they're better off if they get Medicaid and so they don't want to take jobs. It's a very, um, but it's really not true. We're talking about a huge percentage of the American population. And so I I anticipate that through the Medicaid, um, if if the Republicans are successful in repealing a lot of the Medicaid funds, we are going to see a major turning back of the gains that we have made through the ACA. Um, and I think that that's a lot of what we're, we're likely to see. I mean, we're going to continue to see them trying to cut Medicaid in, in a lot of different ways. And I think it's important to realize that following the ACA, if you cut Medicaid, it's uncertain as to what's going to happen. The various Republican proposals have suggested that they are going to cut between 15 and 22 million people off of the Medicaid rolls. Um, Those are the the estimates for those two proposals. And if they do that, a a number of the states, about eight of the states that accepted the Medicaid expansion would immediately stop Medicaid expansion if the federal if the federal money um, was reduced in, in any way. And so those it's really important to recognize that the states are heavily involved in the Medicaid program and that individual people in individual states will be cut in that way. Um, in California alone, I mean, we have adopted portions of the ACA into our state laws that reflect how the Medi-Cal program will result. And it's really unclear what happens if the federal money that would be promised to California to cover the Medicaid program would, um, if those dollars would be cut, how would California pay for those things that we've now promised to our citizens and built into law? And so I think that um, as as the federal government sort of tries to reduce its role, I think we're likely to see a much bigger role for states to try and step into the healthcare space, but also struggling to figure out how to budget for things when the federal government is not meeting the promises that it made and the states relied on. You know, just to reinforce something that you're saying, Jamie, I mean, the Medicaid program is the single largest transfer of money from the federal government to the states. It is an enormous part of the lifeblood of the financing of states. And that's why I think it was somewhat probably surprising in a way for many of the Republican senators who were first probably thinking this will be a slam dunk, we're going to repeal the ACA, to start hearing from the governors, uh, many of whom were Republican governors, saying, oh my goodness, that's going to take away an enormous part of the financing of how we do things uh, in, in our state and in our ability to cover, to, to maintain our bond rating, to be able to, to, to borrow money at, at, at uh, low cost and so forth. So it's very significant to the lifeblood of states. And I think there's an incredibly important policy moment now with it looking like things are really moving away from a dramatic legislative change at the congressional level, that there's another chance still for for those 20 or so states still out there that have not expanded Medicaid, 
that would bring about another five or six million people into coverage if they were to do that. The majority of those, by the way, in Texas and Florida, probably at least half of them are living in those two states alone. But there are states, I think, that are very movable in terms of now maybe taking up the Medicaid expansion because sort of the political winds maybe kind of blew overhead and maybe it's going to calm down and they can actually do what is in their rational interest to finally do that. And I think if there's anything that this policy fight showed about trying to repeal the ACA is when there are more uh, states and, and people affected by this that suddenly there is an awareness of, ah, this actually does matter to me. I mean, what was so striking in this uh, repeal effort was suddenly a law that for the longest time was kind of languishing just below 50 percent of the population saying, I don't know, I guess Obamacare is pretty good. All of a sudden, people woke up and said, pretty good, this thing is awesome, and we don't want it to lose it because it's actually had an enormous impact on my personal life and coverage and so forth. And that's why we saw a lot of people coming out to town halls and so forth and pushing back against this. So I do think as a, as a policy opportunity, there is a window now that will open again where some states, uh, states like Virginia, for example, which has a Democratic governor, has had challenges with the legislature, Legislator there, legislature there uh, accepting the expansion, but I think we'll revisit uh, this kind of opportunity and bring more people into coverage. And I, and I think that is something that is likely to be in play uh, in the upcoming uh, months or, or, or years. I think you're exactly right. And I think what we've seen from a lot of the states that have expanded Medicaid, we're starting to see their budgets come in and showing that they are not, in fact, losing money at the rate that they were expected to, you know, that people said, oh, you're going to lose so much money. This is going to be so expensive. You're not going to be able to do that. And the data shows that that's just not what's happening, that a lot of people have been able, who were ill, who are now getting care, are able to go back to work and contribute more substantially to the tax base. And so the data is coming in to show that the states that expanded Medicaid, um, have, are winning with doing that, and that it's been a very successful um, move for them. And so I think if we can get the political climate to stabilize substantially so that we're not constantly threatening to repeal all of this at any moment, I think that we will see a lot of states come back and support Medicaid um, and, and engage in the expansion. And if they don't take the full expansion, they're likely to take um, apply for a Section 1115 waiver where they can modify it slightly. And a lot of Republican states have had great success doing that politically, saying, well, we don't, we don't want the, the, the expansion just as they wrote it. We're going to tailor it a little bit so that it's a little bit more palatable um, and that has been really successful in getting people coverage in those states as well. Well, obviously, all of these topics are extremely important. And as you prepare for some of the questions you might want to give to the panel, I want to end by asking you a slightly different kind of question, which is how has the attempt to the repealing of the ACA made single payer more or less likely in our future? And could it be part of a solution to provide high-quality, lower-cost care. And maybe each of you can make some brief remarks, and then George will walk around with um, a mic. Um, so, Andy, do you want to start? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think when we are talking about things like health care costs, it would be foolish of us not to consider what something like single-payer has to offer to us. I think there is evidence from other countries and even within our own country through programs like Medicare, which, by the way, is a single-payer program for those over the uh, age of 65. Um, 
And uh, what the, one of the major benefits of a single-payer program is that it is administratively less costly to, to run that program. And uh, that is a source of savings that does not have any direct impact on the care that's provided. Um, so I do think it's a, it's a critical thing. It's also – you know, you can understand from a – from a pol- political point of view, why this has resurfaced, that um, I think uh, you know, many on the left probably have been kind of holding their fire for a while and kind of following a political strategy of trying to tack toward a more moderate position, hoping that that would sort of hold this, the center and, and be able to retain um, uh, a control. But you know, with the election of President Trump and what seems to be a fairly sharp uh, uh, drive to the right, uh, those on the left are saying, wow, if an extreme view on the right can work for their team, how about we try going more extreme uh, to the left on our team? And I, I do think you will see that kind of pendulum activity. We're seeing it in states like California and others where there is that uh, b- being raised to the surface. But there are real things that come up that are impediments to moving that forward. Things like, wow, well, uh, does that then require, for example, the help of the federal government to bring the Medicare and the Medicaid dollars into that single-payer strategy a state may use? And, you know, at a time like this, it's a little hard to imagine how our state, which is colored very dark blue, would be able to get those kinds of permissions from from Washington, D.C. right now, which seems to be more intent on trying to gum up some of the the policies that we're putting in place. So I think there are real uh, political uh, barriers to being able to do this, but I think it's a healthy issue to be raising to be able to look at, are there ways that we could obtain savings uh, from reducing uh, administrative costs? Um, I think without question, all this debate about health care has caused – I mean, all this action around health care has caused a lot of people um, to start thinking about health care and why is it that we don't get it this way. And it's really raised the public consciousness. And so when we – it also causes people to look abroad and see that other countries don't seem to have quite as many problems. They have their struggles, but they don't have this, the same kind of debate as we do. And so I think it really has raised the issue and the question of single-payer um, – to the forefront of a lot of people's minds. And what we've seen is that we've seen a lot of interest in single-payer um, and bills initiated in a number of different states around the country. Obviously, Vermont was the first, and then we've had a, a bill in New York and in California and in Nevada. And unfortunately, just like the Vermont bills, none of those bills have had have had any, you know, have had a success. So what's happened is the California bill passed the state assembly but died in the Senate, right? New York's bill, um, there it was proposed, but there hasn't been much movement on it at all. And Nevada, the bill got through the legislature, and then the governor vetoed it on the end. So we're starting to see some progress in states, but not not it hasn't gotten very far. And usually the sticking point with single payer is when people see the price tag, right? They think, oh my God, we're going to have to pay this much extra in taxes. And I think the, the, the point that, as Adams keeps saying, the point that we really need to be having discussion around is that, yes, you're going to pay more in taxes in a single payer bill, but you're not going to be paying a lot of other things. So you're not going to be paying the incredibly high health insurance bills that you historically have paid. We're going to cut the administrative costs from health care. We're going to cut both the, you know, the insurance company's profits that are coming off the top of those things, depending on the way the bill is structured. But there's going to be a lot of savings. And the other thing that I think we really need to make people aware of is the fact that you are paying for the health care of the uninsured and the underinsured you're just paying for it in the most inefficient way humanly possible. It's You're doing it. And so once you make it clear to people that, oh, by the way, your hospital bill or your kid's trip to the pediatrician or whatever it is, is 
you know, twice as expensive as it would be to make sure that, you know, that provider or that state, you know, has enough money or your taxes are higher to make sure that we have enough money to cover the, um, the care for the uninsured and the underinsured. If we can compare those costs that people don't think about and say, this is how much you're paying in taxes, look how much less it actually is, I think that's when we can start to have a real conversation about single payer being viable. Um, so it's going to take a lot of work, but I think um, it's a good place to start. Um, and I'll just first make clear that um, I'm not sure single payer is the place to go. Uh, when I was, uh, I did some research in the 1990s uh, with the VA system, which is like single payer for veterans, um, and we showed that um, when they went through a process of reform and, and implemented better management and electronic records and stuff like that, that they dramatically improved the quality of their care, and they went from, we used data from a sample across the nation, and they went from worse than, by quite a lot, worse than the national average to by quite a lot better than the national average. And uh, I went around presenting this data in Washington and other places, and, and uh, somebody got up and said, well, doesn't this prove that single payer would be better? Because look how the VA is better. And I said, well, but which single payer are we talking about? Are we talking about the VA single payer from before the reform that was worse than the market system or the single payer from after the reform that was better? And, and we have to figure out how we're going to run a health care system, no matter who is paying, so that you get the best possible outcomes. Um, that said, um, I, my answer to the, I mean, your question was, has something about this debate made single payer more or less likely? And so whether or not it's the way you want to go, I think that yes, absolutely, this debate has made single payer more likely because we dangled out there the possibility of taking it away, taking health care away from tens of millions of people may still do that, um, but at any rate, people will see, it will be made obvious, the, the big immediate impact. Um, hopefully, people will listen to the, the effect of, of, uh, that we see in the bank bankruptcy rate. So the bankruptcy rate went way down when we covered more people because more than half bankruptcies before the ACA were related to health care problems. I have a question that goes back to uh, Dr. Dudley's uh, point about hip replacements. and. Now, let's just make believe that we get past the politics and the uh, the policy issues and deal with um, what I think was supposed to be the next step after the ACA, and that was dealing with health care costs and the efficiency of, uh, of, uh, of delivering medicine. So um, what is the first step to take if we want to tackle that? And is it a policy decision, a political decision, or a professional chore to tackle that? Uh, the first step is to talk about it and talk about its real causes. Um, so, uh, and, and there, there are some, and this is why I want us all to talk together. The, the Republican head, new Republican head of the FDA is taking a very interesting approach that we should seriously consider to drug costs. Um, he has said that he wants to speed up the approval of generic medications so there will be at least three generics in every drug category so that there can be more competition. Well, raise your hand if you've had trouble with drug costs or you know somebody who has. The average 
amount that we're spending now for every man, woman, and child in America on drugs is up to $1,000 a year. So we have to seriously consider why are drugs so expensive? Why are they so much more expensive here in the United States than they are in other places you'd be perfectly happy to live? So I'm not saying they're cheaper in poor countries. They're cheaper all over Europe. They're cheaper uh, anywhere that you, you know, is a developed country. Um, and so what are, the, what are the ideas that we need to consider and experiment with um, to figure out whether or not we can do things uh, better? The, on the surface of it, the at least three competitors is a good idea, but there actually are some generic drugs where we already have eight competitors, and they seem to be shadow pricing each other, by which I mean one goes up a little and the other goes up a little. And, and so it may be that we need to do something more to stimulate competition besides just have a number of competitors, but there's no way around the fact that lots of places, there's only one generic available, and the, and the manufacturers have figured out, well, why would I price really low if I could price really high? I just have to be a little cheaper than the brand, and lots of health plans and lots of states even have laws. You must use the generic. So if I'm 90% of the price, I mean, they used to be 10% of the price of the brand or something like that. Now I can be much closer to the brand price. And if I'm the only one here, no one has any choice. Um, so the idea that the, that, that the FDA is pursuing is certainly worth considering. But there's also some evidence that it might not be enough. And so what else do we need to consider at the same time? So I think I think the comments on on drug pricing are really important, but I think also it's important to recognize that drug prices are a fraction of what we spend on healthcare overall, and are, and I think that we really need to look at what's driving healthcare prices up so substantially. We pay more than any other country by a long shot in terms of our overarching healthcare prices, and there's evidence to suggest that that is being driven. Um, that is being driven largely by consolidation in the healthcare provider state, um, in the healthcare provider markets. And so we need to be thinking pretty clearly about ways to promote competition in those markets, ways to break up conglomerates, um, bigger health systems that are driving up costs. We're recognizing that, you know, there was a long time where the FTC and DOJ did not um, pursue healthcare mergers that were happening, and they and health. Hospitals were able to merge and form health systems and hospital systems that have now started to acquire provider groups and provider groups within market and provider groups without outside of market. And we're recognizing that those are now driving costs up substantially. And so to the extent that we are interested in having a market-based approach, we need to start thinking very, very seriously about how to make that market work. And if it can't work, and in places where we don't have the ability to insert competition, we need to start thinking about whether rate regulation is appropriate in some places. And I think that, you know, this is America, and we like our, we like our, our market-based economy, but it's failing us. And it's hurting American businesses, and it's hurting American consumers. And if we want to, um, if we want to really talk about costs, we need to put all policy options on the table. And that bit about the lack of competition is actually... One more thing we should have been talking about all along, and it comes from a very good place. It's not just people going out there trying to be greedy and, and, and be able to charge more. The ACA, as part of what it was trying to do, separate from the insurance bits, it has a whole bunch of things that say, we want you to coordinate care better. 
And so people looked around and said, well, how, why are, where are my coordination of care problems? Well, the hospital doesn't tell the primary care doctor what's happening, and the specialist doesn't know from either one of them. And so there was a lot of consolidation trying to improve the flow of information and with a very good cl clinical rationale. Or I need to have more, I'm a hospital, I need to have more doctors over there on that part of the map where I don't. And when the patient who comes from me from there goes back there, I don't have anyone I know how to talk to. Um, and so there was a lot of people buying up other people um, with a clinical reason to do it. And then it turned out that after not very long, you could only have you know, one or two or three really integrated groups in, in a lot of parts of the country. And so then they had no reason to be careful about their prices because they had half the market. No one could leave them out. How would a single-payer system affect the Kaiser system? You know, probably any uh, company that's involved in, I mean, Kaiser is partially an insurance company. And so if, in fact, we're talking about uh, in single-payer uh, changing the aspects of how money is collected, um, that could have clearly an impact uh, on Kaiser because they are involved in that business. But I do think your question has a, a, a deeper aspect that we should all reflect on a little bit, specifically related to uh, the bill uh, uh, that was put forward here in California and has been thought about in other places. A single-payer system is partly about how do you collect the money in from people, and then it also has the part of how do you pay it out. I mean, this is a decision that, frankly, all insurers have to make a decision about. I think historically single-payer has been thought about as a single collection, say, by the, the, the government, and then paid out fee-for-service. And I think something that's really evolved pretty dramatically since that first concept was raised is – how we pay it out. The fee-for-service system is pretty clearly behind some of what the healthcare cost growth has been about because it very much drives volume rather than value. That right now, uh, any provider who does more stuff, whether it's appropriate or not, is going to get paid more money. And one of the great benefits of something like a Kaiser or uh, any system that takes responsibility for a population is that it starts to make more strategic decisions about how it uses and pays out its resources. So I think, you know, really where a more sophisticated discussion of single payer might end up needing to go to is how do we get the administrative benefit of how we collect the money in, but then think about the benefits we've also learned from being able to then redistribute the money out that is focused on efficiency of how we take care of populations, which is what I think Kaiser has taught us a great deal about here in California, as have some other uh, responsible plans in terms of how they've done things. And that is embedded, in fact, in part uh, in the Affordable Care Act through things like ACOs, which is also trying to move providers more toward this mindset of taking responsibility for a population and using the resources efficiently. So, um, you know, as the bill that was put forward in California, that would have been very bad for Kaiser. But I think there are more clever ways to think about how to administratively be efficient of collecting the money and efficient in how we redistribute it back out. Yeah, I actually think Kaiser would do great. Um, uh, so, that, that, so Kaiser isn't one thing. Kaiser is actually three things. It's a medical group. That's the doctors. It's a hospital chain, um, and it's an insurance plan. So obviously, if the government takes on the insurance function, the people who work for the insurance plan have a problem. Um, but, but most, by far, of the people at Kaiser are on in the medical group side and the hospital side. And that care um, 
to the extent that they could say, well, people who come to us expect us to cover everything for them, they can really manage that budget. And if they're facing a single payer who says, we want you to do this for the lowest possible budget, then Kaiser has all the pieces already in place. So I, I actually think a single payer could work out great for Kaiser. Um, so if you say the single payer is bring the money in and then dole it out in a way that focuses on the budget, then Kaiser could start doing that and I think has all the pieces to do it well. If the... Congress uh, actually does a bipartisan fix to various elements of the Affordable Care Act and gets through the Senate and the House. What's the possibility that President Trump would veto that simply on the grounds that he's opposed to anything that President Obama produced? I I think that is a fascinating question to imagine. Republican-controlled chambers uh, of the Senate and the House both agreeing to something and then uh, the president vetoing it. Not an impossibility with this uh, particular president, but you would think that somehow um, he uh, he would recognize uh, what the underlying politics of that are. But you're certainly laying out a scenario that doesn't seem impossible given what we've experienced thus far. Yeah, I don't think anything's impossible with this pregnant president, but I do think that he has demonstrate an ability to pivot I think it's quite likely he would he would say this is an amazing thing that have come out of the Republican House and the Republican Senate and declare victory and go home so I want to thank all of our wonderful panelists and I also want to encourage you to look at the UC Hastings School of Law the healthcare tracker which can provide to you a great deal of wonderful information is kept up to date, as well as the Philip R. Lee Institute for Health Policy website. And on that note, I want to say thank you very much for all of your wonderful responses and for you all to be here. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.